In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Moving pictures. I remember when Father Rutler uh, delightfully explained his, his various roles in the city of New York. He's chaplain to so many uh, groups of knights and uh, brothers of various uh, um, origins. Um, but a title that he holds uh, near and dear to his heart is that he serves on the hanging committee at the Union League Club, which sounds like he's a chaplain to executions. But the hanging committee at the Union League Club is in charge of where works of art and portraits are hung on the wall. So it's not quite as dramatic. Moving pictures is my theme and my topic, however. You might remember my describing the glorious presentation of the Maya Sta by Duccio, commissioned to adorn the high altar in the new then Duomo of Siena. So this is early 1200s. And the Maya Sta spans 14, 15 feet in width and the same in height. From a distance, it would look like a, just an enormous golden wall. And yet, up close, you see that it's actually individual squares with uh, a scene in the life of Christ depicted in art, almost looking like an icon, but, but not quite. And on the other side, scenes in the life of the Blessed Virgin. When it was finished and brought to the Duomo for installation, it wasn't just simply delivered. It was processed. <clears throat> the church gathered all the sectors of society and, and arranged them in, in a procession, the likes of which would be seen for Corpus Christi and other similar solemnities. And this work of art was brought in and brought to, uh, to the high altar. Now, unfortunately, it's no longer on the altar. It uh, was sold in various pieces through the 1700s. And the Museum of the Duomo in Siena is trying to reclaim all those pieces. And it has much of the original, but not all of it. I discovered last year or the year before, a French filmmaker had made a short film about the Maya Sta. Not really about it, it's not a documentary, but a, a moving image of that work of art. Various scenes at different times appear to present a, a, a one of those squares or several of those squares. There's something a little um, off about the way it's not quite identical to the original. You know that you're not watching a video of the actual painting. It has that slight modification that it's almost it's almost like a cartoon, but not quite, almost like a cartoon. And then, all of a sudden, the figures in the scene start moving. 
And then you realize that you're not watching an animation. You're watching a film of actual actors who are dressed so as to appear to be the figures in the painting going from one scene to the next. It's mesmerizing. I mention that because on Friday, two days ago, at the afternoon stations of the cross, I led the few souls that attended in a, a, in a very slow, meditative, almost minimalist stations of the cross. We didn't chant. When I arrived at each station, we, we genuflected and, and we prayed the customary prayer. We adore thee, O Christ, and we praise thee because by thy holy cross thou hast redeemed the world. And then we just remained in silence. I didn't look at my clock. I don't know if it was a minute or two minutes of silence. But I just simply stared at each image, which are really quite lovely and worthy. I stared at them long enough until it seemed as though the figures were starting to move. And then I realized I'd been there long enough. It was time to move on to the next one. But there are other ways that you know that you're actually drawn into what's going on, not just an optical illusion. Every first Sunday of Lent, we hear this gospel of our Lord's temptation in the desert regardless of extraordinary form, ordinary form, and even in the ordinary form, regardless of what year, A, B, C, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it doesn't matter. We always listen to our Lord's temptation in the desert. And so this is familiar. It may bring back familiar thoughts and inspirations or insights. Hopefully it does more than just simply encourage you to persevere. Hopefully it does that, but hopefully it does a lot more. Perhaps we reflect as well on how, how the devil approaches in temptation. All right, appealing to appetite, appealing to vanity, appealing to power. Perhaps that will give us the consolation of, of remembering that we were not made to sin. Original sin is inexplicable, would not have happened so far as I'm concerned, if the evil one had not been there to lure them, to trick them, to seduce them into sin. Sin isn't proper to us. We don't enjoy it. Someone else has to lead us into it. First Confessions yesterday at St. Agnes bore that out. We had First Confessions here over the previous weeks. And the little ones are adorable. Might be the best free comedy there is. But they're so sincere as well. 
and they they admit what they're what they're what they've done and and the ones who are who seem especially uh stricken with um how bad they've been and how bad they are prompt me to ask them very simply okay so when you do these things do you feel good or do you feel bad 100% 21 years I feel bad of course you do now imagine how great you would feel if you never did these things that'd be awesome right it's that simple when I, when I do these bad things, I feel bad. I wish I didn't do them. So confession is critical not just to be a place where we admit what we've done and not just to admit that we've done it and that we regret it, but also that we, we, we we're begging for God's grace and help not to do this anymore. But it's, it's just more proof that we were not made to sin. It's not proper to us. We don't enjoy it. We can be changed so that we do enjoy that, but that's a long process. Our first taste of sin is always bitter. So our Lord is approached by the tempter. Perhaps we also reflect simply on the depth of our Lord's love. I hope we do. What he's willing to do for our salvation, what he's willing to suffer. Consider that our Lord did not shield himself from any of this. He could have. He could have bound the devil and kept the devil far from him, but he didn't. Our Lord protected himself from nothing. He, in fact permitted himself to suffer things that the vast majority of us will never, ever have to encounter. He spared nothing. He did not use his divinity to gain him any privilege whatsoever. Amazing. As I encourage people on Ash Wednesday to, to begin these 40 days, not just for the sake of a personal endeavor, not just for the sake of something they're going to give up, not just for the sake of something that's going to make a difference and help them grow closer to God. Those are good things, of course, but Lent's far more significant than that. When our Lord preaches on how to fast, how to pray, how to give alms, it should make us think not just... Okay, I've got to follow those instructions. We have to do that, right? But, but we're, we're, not, <clears throat> we're not his young children, right? He wants us to be his mature children of God the Father. Obviously, our Lord prayed, and our Lord fasted, and our Lord gave alms. Our Lord teaches by doing, Moreover, he draws us into something truly mystical when we enter into his prayer, when we enter into his suffering, his penance. Lent, therefore, isn't 
Um, it isn't enough when we, when we do something. As Christians, our life is to enter into that of Christ. It is no longer me who lives, but he who lives in me. And so we continue to do things. We continue to offer up prayers. We continue to offer up penances, but not as though I am doing something for God. But rather, Christ is inviting me to participate in his life of prayer, in his life of penance, in his care for the poor. The dialogue of the the devil and our Lord is fascinating. Probably begins to uh, intrigue us when we realize that the devil is really asking questions, not just making statements. If you are the Son of God, the devil doesn't know. The devil is testing him. Obviously, the devil has been observing everything. Everything that has been done or said by this man whether it be as a young boy or in his older years, and everything that he didn't do, namely anything sinful, everything that's been said about him, all the scriptures that have been related to him already by prophets or kings or by holy men and women, it would stand to reason that the the devil who knows the Old Testament perfectly has concluded that this is the Messiah, but obviously hasn't figured out the rest. Because if, if the evil one knew that this is the second person of the Holy Trinity, the conversation would have been very different. So he's asking three times, not just tempting three times, asking three times, if you are the Son of God. And he's also taunting and mocking I have all this power. I have all this control over what was made by God, but now it it belongs to me. I'm willing to give it to you if you just play along. And Jesus does not negotiate with terrorists. What instead happens? The Lord will actually... foil the evil one, permit the evil one to think that he is securing a victory by scheming and conniving and bringing forces together such that our Lord is condemned and executed and hanged on a tree. And when he breathed his last and gave up his spirit, our Lord accomplished his great victory. offering up the most precious sacrifice to to atone for all sins of all men. He would retake control that the devil 
had won by subterfuge, not by stealing, but by laying down his life and inviting others to, to become part of his kingdom by their own free will. So I encourage you to make the Stations of the Cross, to enter into a way of relating to Christ that is going to draw your heart beyond the words that you read. It's always somewhat intriguing to see people read their books in front of Jesus. Certainly there are holy words that we take upon our lips that we have to read because they're not our own words. And so especially so this Friday afternoon, I wanted people to see me not reading a book in front of the station, but to be looking at the station. In the meantime, I've put together booklets so that you can see these, uh, these images for yourself up close, whether you're in the pews or at home. And not just to reflect on what Jesus did, but to enter into it. He has offered up the sacrifice. It is his prayer that's being offered up at the altar. The prayers that we do, the penances that we make, aren't as though they're added on top of his it's not as though this, there's the sacrifice of the altar and then there's our sacrifices that we put on top of that so that it's more. But rather, there is only one prayer. There's only one dialogue of love to the divine persons. They're already engaged in it. We are invited to enter into that prayer. There's only one sacrifice and we can participate in it. No one else can do that for us. Christ has already offered up the sacrifice. He is already offering up the prayer. But no one else can plug us into it. We have to And he doesn't force us. Because what's beautiful about it is that it's an act of love. just as necessary and just as voluntary as Christ's love for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.